1964, Johnny Carson, host of The Tonight Show, introduced one of his classic characters for the very first time. And if you remember last episode's discussion, by classic, I mean historically memorable. The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson as it was officially called, ran from October of 1962, when Carson took over from the previous host, entertainer and comedian Jack Parr, to May 22, 1992, when Carson handed the show off to his replacement, Jay Leno. The Tonight Show itself was a classic, and under Carson's stewardship, would set the standard by which all late-night television talk shows would be judged. It defined the form and style and was the basic blueprint for all such shows that would follow. And, thanks to the reputation of Carson as a host, left its mark on the cultural scene of America by highlighting new and upcoming comedians, actors, and other performers that would go on to further shape the zeitgeist for years to come throughout its entire run and beyond. Zeitgeist, by the way, is a German word that combines the word for ghost, geist, with the German for time, Zeit, in order to give a word that means spirit of the time, more or less. But I digress. Carson's new character was named Karnak the Magnificent. Karnak was played by Carson himself, ably assisted by his sidekick Ed McMahon. The Tonight Show would come back from commercial break and McMahon would announce Karnak's appearance on set, at which point Carson would step through the stage curtain dressed in a black velvet cape and wearing an overly large turban on his head with an ostrich feather prominently displayed. He would begin making his way towards the desk, but stumble on the step up to it before finding his seat and settling in. The bit involved Karnak, a mystical seer, predicting the answers to questions enclosed in envelopes to humorous effect. Often the answers given were puns, which only revealed themselves once the question was known. In one particularly well-known response, Karnak, after receiving the envelope from McMahon, held it to his head and said, Sis, boom, ba." Then peeling the end of the envelope open and extracting the card inside, Karnak revealed that the question inside was, Describe the sound a sheep makes when it explodes. For the next several minutes, neither Carson nor McMahon are able to speak as both they and the studio audience break up with laughter, an effect referred to in the acting community as corpsing, the inability to continue with a performance due to infectious laughter. Karnak would go on to become a regular bit on The Tonight Show, with purported answers covering everything from excuses for vile puns to commentary on current events. Often, if a joke was not particularly well received by the audience, Carson would respond with a comedic curse directed at the audience, along the lines of, May the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. And generally speaking, the audience was always enthusiastic when Ed McMahon announced the presentation of the last envelope, signaling the end of the bit. But the reason I've brought this up is not for the bit itself, but for the way Ed McMahon introduced it and something hidden within it that caused no small amount of confusion when I first heard it years ago. See, as Karnak took his seat at the desk, Ed would explain, for the benefit of those who might be seeing it for the first time, what the gag was all about. 
I hold in my hand the envelopes. As a child of four can plainly see, these envelopes have been hermetically sealed. They've been kept in a mayonnaise jar on Funk and Wagnall's porch since noon today. No one knows the contents of these envelopes, but you, in your mystical and borderline divine way, will ascertain the answers, having never before heard the questions. Now, you might think the confusing bit was the words Funk and Wagnalls, especially at this late date, but that is easily explained. Funk and Wagnall was the publisher of, frankly, not very good dictionaries and encyclopedias. They've been out of business for some time now, but they were definitely the sort of authority who might have sponsored the bit just for some sort of exposure and who might very well have a porch as if they were run out of someone's house. But that's not the confusing bit. No, the confusing bit was the phrase hermetically sealed. What on earth did that mean? Well, the concept turns out to be easy enough. It just means an airtight seal on a container which allows no gas to pass through, typically made by melting closed the mouth of a glass container. And the reason it is called a hermetic seal is because our old friend Hermes Trismegistus was said to have invented a magical seal to make things airtight. Easy peasy. There's certainly nothing weird or confusing about that, and no possible way that researching it further could reveal anything about anything even vaguely related to D&D, life in general, or even the way the world works today. Right? Right? Well, my lips are sealed. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. If you've been around long enough, you'll know that we've talked about Hermes Trismegistus before. Several times. He's cropped up in episodes about alchemy, glue, and quicksilver, naturally, but also a bit in an episode about trailblazing that involved a brief discussion of rock cairns. Check those episodes out for more. But Hermes is a complicated figure, and his influences have been astonishingly far-reaching even beyond the material we've already covered, given just how long ago he may or may not have existed. In fact, just deciding if he existed or not will help us see the sort of far-reaching changes he is involved with. See, Hermes Trismegistus is what is known as a syncretic combination, and that's a useful phrase to know. Syncretism and therefore syncretic combination, involves the combination of two different beliefs or schools of thought into one. In Hermes' case, as we've explained elsewhere, it is a combination of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Tote, which happened because the two shared the same sort of portfolio of interests and areas of influence. So when the Greeks came along and discovered the Egyptians had a god doing a lot of the same thing as their own god Hermes, they came to the natural and extremely convenient conclusion that they must be one and the same trading under different names. No, no, said the Greeks when the Egyptians came around to ask what they meant by claiming all the Greek gods were better than all the Egyptian ones. They aren't better. Not really. In fact, they're the same god. No, really. We just call him Hermes. So you see, it's perfectly okay for you to worship this selection of Greek gods because really they're just your Egyptian ones in togas. And with human heads, because frankly, that bit of your religion is just weird, and no one really knows what an ibis is anyhow. It's all the same thing, really. 
which is a handy thing to be able to say when you're trying to conquer someone else's civilization with as little fuss as possible. Basically, look around and decide who the biggest god in the other guy's pantheon is, and declare that your biggest god is the same as them, just with a different ID card. After that, it's like one of those matching games where deities with similar aspects are paired up just so that everyone can claim that really, the other guy's religion is just like yours, and there are no real differences between the two. All you need is a bit of refinement to get things to match up, and pretty soon it's a lot easier to believe that, when it comes to religion at least, the conquerors aren't so different from the conquered. And what were we all fighting about anyway? The Greeks got pretty good at it, too, and it wasn't long before a lot of Egyptian gods stopped looking like a teleporter malfunction and began to look like a bunch of frat boys during rush week. Of course, the Greeks turned out not to be so hot at it once the Romans showed up and did the same thing to them as they'd done to the Egyptians. Which is why nowadays you have to have one of those pinned-up red string charts to figure out the combined Roman and Greek pantheon. And of course... If you know anything about the celebration of various holidays and religious figures across a variety of cultures, you'll immediately see that it didn't stop with the Romans. Lots of traditions, particularly religious ones, were mushed together in an effort to unify or pacify populations of people who might otherwise have fought over quote-unquote minor differences in belief just by saying different but the same. Syncretic Combination at work. Which ties in very neatly with something called Hermeticism, a system of philosophy and religion based on the writings and teachings of Hermes Trismegistus, a key component of which was that there was but one true religion given by God at the beginning of time and of which all others are a mere unrevealed or misunderstood version. Called the Hermetica, the writings all purport to be from Hermes T, even though many of them come from a period well after he could possibly have been alive, even if he were real, which we've established he is not. The Hermetic texts are divided into two main subcategories. One set, the Technical Hermetica, are made up of texts which discuss astrology, medicine, pharmacology, alchemy, and magic, individual examples of which are believed to go back as far as the 2nd or 3rd century BCE. The other set, called the Religio-Philosophical Hermetica, were written anywhere from the 1st to 3rd century CE, and cover the relationships between man, God, and the cosmos, which you might call anthropology, theology, and cosmology. Mostly what they do is recommend a set of moral observations relating to the Way of Hermes, that leads the follower to a spiritual rebirth and eventual ascent to heaven by aligning the individual with the true, original religion as given by God. Originally written in Greek, and therefore reflecting strongly Greek philosophical ideas, the Hermetica wasn't particularly well known or appreciated in its own time. Partly this was because the various texts involved came from a number of different sources that were translated into Arabic even as they were added to and expanded. Because of this, Byzantine scholars retained access to the Hermetica, even as European cultures forgot about them during the Dark Ages. It wasn't until the Renaissance when a pair of translators took a selection of 17 of the texts and translated them into Latin as the Corpus Hermeticum that Western audiences rediscovered them. 
and boy did they hit big once they were in Latin. See, in the Renaissance, there was a big to-do over something called humanism. Now, you might think you know what is meant by humanism, but in this case, Renaissance humanism was really all about re-establishing the humanities, the studia humanitatis, grammar, rhetoric, poetry, history, and moral philosophy. Not the other sort of humanism which you get nowadays, which is why it is referred to as Renaissance humanism to help tell them apart. Anyway, part of the goal of Renaissance humanism was to get back to basics. The medieval period had really sort of mucked about with Christianity and complicated things so much that it was hard to know what was and wasn't true Christianity. All the pomp and circumstance of the various Christian belief systems was getting in the way of a really solid belief in and understanding of God. Really, the New Testament, they thought, should be the guide. Not all the other stuff hung on it by medieval theology. Back to the source, ad fontes. In order to do this, proponents of Renaissance humanism needed to go back to the ancient texts to re-establish not just basic Christianity, but all the learning that went along with it. And the older the source they could draw from, the better. Aristotle, Plato, and the other classics of Greek and Roman thought and philosophy were the way to go. And into the middle of all this renewed interest in the classics dropped the newly translated works of Hermes Trismegistus. The Corpus Hermeticum was exactly the sort of thing Renaissance Christians were looking for. It made sense according to what they understood of biblical teaching. There was only one God, and all good things came from God and nowhere else. The greatest evil was ignorance of God. The soul was good and pure, but hindered by the affections of the body. And death was not destruction, but a change of state. It demonstrated basic tenets of the Christian faith, and how best to think about them in both a religious and philosophical way. It was ideal for a basic and fundamental understanding of the faith on which greater, further understanding could be built. And since it looked like Hermes had been a contemporary of Moses as far as the people of the Renaissance were concerned, there could be few better authorities of how to properly practice Christian belief outside of the Bible itself. With that, interest in Hermes and his works really took off, and Renaissance scholars began looking for more, because this Hermes guy really seemed to know his stuff. Surely, he must be an expert in many fields. Fortunately, it didn't take long to find more texts, and on a wide variety of subjects, too. In addition to the Corpus Hermeticum, two more works are generally recognized as being products of Hermes Trismegistus. The Emerald Tablet and Asclepius, also known as the Perfect Sermon. Asclepius is essentially a reinforcement of the ideas about God and the cosmos as first presented in the Corpus Hermeticum, but it, of all the Hermetic writings, was the only one to survive through the Middle Ages as a readable, accessible Latin translation. Which means it got its foot in the door first and longest and had the most influence of the Hermetic texts. The Emerald Tablet, on the other hand, was, as we have discussed elsewhere, the foundation of the art of alchemy, and arrived on the scene much later. It contains within its brief text the phrase, as above, so below. Though to be accurate and less cherry-picked, 
it should read more like, that which is above is from that which is below, and that which is below is from that which is above, working the miracles of one. And there you have it, the key to all of the magical art of alchemy. Easy. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that's an excellent question, and one which I am glad you asked. As discussed in our alchemy episode, the general idea seemed to be that what you did down here on Earth was echoed in the heavens above, and vice versa. But what that actually meant was anyone's guess. Part of the art of alchemy was trying to work out exactly how that was meant to happen. And what it seemed was happening was that Hermes had somehow encoded the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone as well as a method for turning base metals into gold, two main goals of all alchemy, in the text of the Emerald Tablet. Like, really encoded it. Encoded it so hard that you couldn't work it out without years and years of study in some very difficult subjects. Very encoded indeed. Although, one might also suggest that the reason it was so difficult to decipher was that there was no deeper meaning to find. No secrets hidden within. Which was a rather dim view to take, according to many folks who suddenly became aficionados of Hermes' works now that their true power had been revealed. And it all seemed so clear and obvious, provided you had the wit to understand it all. Or at least, divine revelation to set you on the path to understanding. Emanuel Swedenborg was born in 1688 in Stockholm, Sweden, to a well-to-do family that made its money in mining. His father, Jesper, was a professor of theology at Uppsala University, though he was somewhat at odds with the Lutheran Church of the day over some of his beliefs, which included the belief that angels and demons were part of everyday life. When Emmanuel eventually graduated from Uppsala himself, he went on the grand tour of Europe and decided that his true calling in life was to become a great scientist. Taking up natural science and engineering, he was eventually appointed to the Swedish Board of Mines and began publishing a periodical called The Northern Daedalus, which recorded mechanical and mathematical inventions and discoveries, one of which was his own idea that incredible religious experiences and mental events were due to minute vibrations, tremulations, upon the brain. Now, Swedenborg was a genuine Renaissance man, his knowledge and interests were far-ranging and varied. In the 1730s, he took up anatomy and physiology and developed some of the first ideas about neurons and nerve cells. He correctly described attributes of the cerebral cortex, showed the organization of the nervous system, identified the functions of the pituitary gland, and made several other discoveries which, while newly discovered but unproven at the time, were subsequently proved correct in more modern times. But... He also developed an interest in spirituality at the same time. Specifically, Swedenborg wanted to know how matter related to the spirit, something we now call the mind-body problem. The basic idea being, how does the organic matter of the brain going about its biological processes come by the ability to generate the thoughts, feelings, and other intangible processes of a conscious mind? And boy, it sure would be neat to launch into an explanation for you just now of how it all works. But better minds than mine have thought about it for centuries, and there still isn't any concrete answer. 
So we'll just pass by that for right now and return to Swedenborg, who, in trying to work out the processes of creation, happened to come up with a little idea called the nebular hypothesis 20 years before Laplace, which is the currently accepted explanation for how solar systems form. That whole slowly rotating cloud of super hot gases gradually cooling and clumping up until a sun and planets form. So, by no means was Swedenborg an idiot. But he did have some interesting, let's say, ideas for how things worked both above and below. In 1735, in addition to a book on the unusual combination of philosophy and metallurgy, Swedenborg wrote a little manuscript called On the Infinite, which purported to explain how the finite is related to the infinite and how the soul is connected to the body. Because, you see, in Swedenborg's view, the soul was comprised of material substances, things you could actually see and touch. And no, very few people agreed with him. Especially not the church in particular. Still, compared to what was coming, this was all still pretty tame. In 1744, Swedenborg began having dreams and visions. Of all sorts. Good and bad. For six months. Then, as he sat in a private room in a London tavern, the lights seemed to dim, and the figure of a man appeared to him, told Swedenborg not to eat too much, and that sent him scurrying home, afraid of what he had seen. Later that night, as Swedenborg attempted to sleep, the same man appeared to him again in a dream, introduced himself as the Lord, and told Swedenborg that they were going to write a book together that would explain, quite clearly, the spiritual meaning of the Bible. And then he opened up the spirit world for Swedenborg to observe. The book that came from this collaboration was a meticulous, verse-by-verse, eight-volume, spiritual interpretation of the entire Bible called Heavenly Mysteries, and took Swedenborg and his, uh, holy ghostwriter, ten years to complete. It was then followed by another 14 works over the next 25 years. According to Swedenborg, the last judgment had already occurred in 1757 and finished by the end of that year. He knew because he witnessed it, but only in the spiritual realm, not in the physical world. And it was the Christian church's fault because it lost both charity and faith, and so cost everyone their spiritual free will, which acted as an individual's personal balance between the forces of heaven and hell. And also, Jesus had already come back, again spiritually rather than physically, and quite naturally it was through Swedenborg himself. While he was at it, he went on to claim that originally everyone was vegetarian by design, but that it was now okay to eat meat as a personal matter of conscience without condemnation. He had conversations with spirits from other planets, was able to freely pass from the physical world to heaven or hell as he pleased, and converse with those he found there, and had met spiritual beings from outside the solar system. He backed up these and other assertions with proofs in the form of extensive quotes from the Old and New Testament, 
which seemed to show agreement with his ideas. And all of it was based around a core belief in what he called correspondences, which were exactly the same as our old friend, as above, so below, just in different clothes. Naturally, very few people at the time took him seriously. But also naturally, a few generations later, people began to take up the idea of correspondence and run with it, because what correspondence looked like, and what the misstatement of as above, so below allowed, was justification for even more outlandish beliefs, all centered around the ideas of mysticism, spiritualism, and religion. And, as we'll find out in the next episode, it nearly ruined the world. Go ahead and look that up in your Funkin' Wagons. Thank you for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. I'm glad you did. If you'd like to help support the show, why not head over to buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback and sign up for a recurring membership. It's very easy to do and gets you access to transcripts, early episode releases, and more. You can even get access to a new member-only blog that will be covering a wide variety of topics all written by me. GM Word of the Week is a Fiddleback production, researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I am called Hermes Trismegistus because I hold three parts of the wisdom of the whole world.